Well, we want to focus our attention again to uh, the gospel this morning. And this morning I want to talk about reviewing the essential components of the gospel. This is all, this, a lot of this stuff we have talked about, but I, but I just want to continue to drive home the points to you. Um, my, ho- my whole goal in this is that you would become evangelists or better evangelists, that you would not shy away from sharing the gospel with people who need to hear it, um, whether that's people who think they're believers and aren't, or people who that you know, absolutely know, that are not believers and uh, that you, you rub shoulders with and you have the opportunity to get there with them. And so that's, that's kind of where, where what I've hoped for this. We have to do, so today's class and then next week be a little kind of a fun little class and, um, and that's sharing the gospel in 30 seconds. And you're going to wonder how that's possible when I give you all this stuff today, okay? So, but, but we'll talk about that next week. And uh, then we'll transition into missions, all right? So, I put on your sheet there this, this statement. There are always debates and theological questions about evangelism. But in the end, it always comes down to this issue. For a person to have saving faith, what exactly needs to be communicated so that he or she understands the message? If we're going to communicate something so that they know what saving faith is, what is that something? So today we're going to review the nuts and bolts of the gospel message one more time. That is, who God is, why people are alienated from Him, what Christ has done to mediate the two, and how people must respond for saving faith. When sharing the gospel with non-believers, what are the main elements that we should take, make sure that we are communicating to them. And that's the question I want to answer. Today we're going to get, I keep saying this, is, this is more practical, but, but it's, I'm going to hit you with a lot of things today. And, um, and I want you to think of it in terms, even though this is maybe more practical what we're talking about, I want you to think bigger than that in the theology that you already know. Okay? Um, The real question we have to ask is, how should I evangelize my friends, my family, and my neighbors? Many, maybe even most evangelical churches tend to take a minimalist approach to that question. Unfortunately, what what used to be a real desire to express the heart of the gospel clearly has now been replaced by kind of uh, this this condensing of the, of the essentials of the message to kind of uh, um, the, the most basic terms or expressions or phrases. The gospel that Paul called the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes includes all the truth about Christ. It has to. Somehow, the evangelical church has managed to make the gospel a a plan of salvation. We've talked about this before. A plan of salvation. We've reduced the message to a list of facts that we can give in the fewest possible words 
and then we've done our gospel duty. You've probably heard, seen some of these or heard some of these plans of salvation, like six steps to peace with God, five things God wants you to know, four spiritual laws, three truths you can't live without, two ways to live, or one way to heaven. Another trend which can be just as dangerous is to reduce evangelism to a memorized dialogue. To reduce, evangelize to a memorized dialogue. Most evangelism training classes consist of having Christians memorize a series of questions. If you get these series of questions memorized, and each question will fall into one of the few, few categories that have these pre-planned responses. It's not that, that that's necessarily wrong or in error, that in of itself. But we need to remember, the gospel isn't about a plan. And that's what we tend to make it. We want, it's not about a plan. It's about a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. So here's the problem. The gospel isn't a message that can be capsulated or abridged or shrink-wrapped and then offered as some generic remedy for every kind of sinner. Arrogant sinners need to be instructed about who God is and why He has the right to demand their obedience. Self-righteous sinners need to have their sin exposed by the demands of God's Word. Careless sinners need to be confronted with the reality of God's coming judgment. Fearful sinners need to hear that God in His mercy has provided a way of deliverance. All sinners must understand how holy God really is. They must comprehend the basic truths of Christ's sacrificial death and His triumph in His, re in his resurrection. They need to be confronted with God's demand that they turn from their sin to embrace Christ as their Lord and Savior. And in all of the examples of Jesus and the apostles' evangelism, whether you, whether you evangelizing, whether you say that's to individuals or to crowds, there's no two incidents where the, they presented the message in the exact same way, with the same terminology. They knew that salvation is a sovereign work of God. They knew their role was to preach truth. They knew the Holy Spirit would apply it individually to the hearts of those who would believe. The form of the message, though, will vary in each case, but the content must always drive home the reality of God's holiness and the helpless condition of the sinner. We can't forget that. And so we've talked about that over and over. But then it points sinners to Christ as a sovereign but merciful Lord, the one who's purchased full atonement for all who would turn to Him in faith. Christians today are often cautioned not to say too much to the lost. Don't, don't use certain things. Certain spiritual is issues are labeled taboo when speaking to unsaved people. We're told that God's law, Christ's lordship, turning from sin, surrender, obedience, judgment, and even hell can't be included in the gospel presentation because 
that would add something to the offer of God's free gift. What this actually has done is undercut the power of the message of salvation. It's also populated the church with converts whose faith is counterfeit and whose hope hangs on phony promises. With no real emotion or expression, they, they accept Christ as Savior, but openly and boldly reject Him as their Lord, giving Him shallow lip service while scorning Him with their hearts, as Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 7, 6. Or casually affirming Him with their mouths while deliberately denying Him with their deeds. Titus 1.16 says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Addressing Him superficially as Lord, Lord, they stubbornly decline to do what He says. And I'm afraid this kind of person fits the tragic description of the many in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Somebody look that up. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. If you get it, go ahead and just read it. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? And your name, and I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. That's, that to me is the one of the scariest sections, you know, passages in the Bible. I, like it's, it's scary. You know, you think, you think you're saved, you think you're doing all of the right things, and for, for the Lord to say, I'm afraid that this kind of person, the person who just flippantly accepts Jesus as Savior, but openly and boldly rejects Him as, as Lord, will one day be stunned to hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's, that's a scary thought. So, what should we say when proclaiming the gospel? There are many helpful books that give guidelines, and guidelines of how to witness. Um, they're, they're cool things, you know, ways that are kind of tricking people into these, these kind of things. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that's all bad. But in this class, I want us to focus on issues relating to the content of the message. Because really, that's the most important thing. The content of the message we're called to share with unbelievers. That's it, why I haven't given you all these, these many, many, many methods out there. Um, I've given you a gospel presentation. I think this is going to... That, that, because that is something that we've talked about over and over and over, and those are the elements that we need to deal with. But if we really want to articulate the gospel as accurately as possible, what are those points that we need to make clear? So, I've given you a list of truths on your sheet there about the gospel that you, as an evangelist, um, should try to include in every conversation that is about the gospel. So, it, this isn't, it, it's not necessarily in chronological order. It's just a list of what you want to communicate. And at some point, if you're talking to somebody about the gospel, having a discussion about it. 
And there's a lot that I'm going to give you here. That's why most everything's written out because we're going to fly through this really fast. I'm going to ask you to look up the verses. Um, so you might as well just start looking up and grab one. And, and uh, by the time we're done, everybody here have, will have read one. All right? So, number one. Teach them about God's holiness. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Much of contemporary evangelism tries to stimulate anything, anything but fear of God in the mind of sinners. For example, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Is the opening line of a lot of evangelistic um, approaches today. That kind of evangelism is far from the image of God who, who, we just read the verse, must be feared. God's holiness is the only remedy to that kind of thinking. God is perfectly holy, and He therefore demands perfect holiness. Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. Anybody got that? For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Pretty, pretty clear. First Samuel 2 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. So who is who is as holy as the Lord? None. First Samuel 6 20. And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And who will the ark go up from here? Who can stand in the presence of this holy Lord God? 1 Peter 1.16 Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Yep. Hebrews 12.14 Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Yeah, without holiness, no one's going to see the Lord. Exodus 25. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Yeah, so first thing we need to do is teach them, somehow we need to talk to them about the fact that God is perfectly holy. That's his standard. Holiness, and so that's that's has to be included in what we what we uh, talk to people about, because if they don't see that, then they can't see the next point, and that is show them their sin. Gospel means good news. What makes it truly good news is not just that heaven is free, but that sin has been conquered by God's Son. Today, the gospel has become something other than a remedy for sin. Salvation is offered as an escape from punishment. Life insurance plan. God's plan has, for a wonderful life, a way to be fulfilled. Whatever that means. An answer to life's problems, a promise to free forgiveness. And all those things are true in a sense but they're byproducts of redemption, not the main issue of the gospel itself. When you don't address sin, 
The promise of the divine blessing cheapens the message. We've just set the standard, and that's holiness. So we introduce sin into that as us, man. In Scripture, evangelism often begins with a call to repentance and obedience. In Scripture, evangelism often begins with a call to repentance and obedience. So, does anybody have Mark 1.15? And say, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. Paul wrote in Romans 10.9. Anybody got that? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then Peter preached in Acts 2.38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And John wrote in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on The writer to the Hebrews said in Hebrews 5.9 that Christ did what? Did you read that? In being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed Him. Yeah. He's the author of eternal salvation who to those who obey Him. So there is a repentance and obedience there. Uh, last, James wrote in James 4, 7 to 8. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So there's obedience, there's repentance there. The Bible never cautions against preaching repentance, obedience, Righteousness or judgment to unbelievers. John 16.8 says of the Holy Spirit, And He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. If we want to follow a biblical model, we can't ignore sin. We cannot ignore sin or righteousness or judgment because they're the very subjects that the Holy Spirit uses to convict the unsaved according to John 16.8. So I don't think we can omit them from the gospel message and still call it a gospel message. Can we really tell sinners they don't have to turn from their sin and then call that evangelism? I mean, that's how silly it becomes. Can we reduce the gospel message to simply accept Christ and still believe we are evangelistic? Sin makes true peace impossible for unbelievers. Isaiah 57, 20-21. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waves toss up its refuge and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. No peace. True peace is impossible for unbelievers. All have sinned. Romans 3, 10 and 11. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. 
according to this verse, nobody's able to claim they're going to heaven because they're a good person. Right? But we hear that a lot. Sin makes the sinner worthy of death, James 1.15 and Romans 6.23. Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Yeah, sin brings forth death. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pretty clear. The wages of sin is death. Sinners can do nothing to earn salvation. Uh, Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all like an unseen thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all faded as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. <laughs> so, so we are, all our righteousness, the things that we can muster up on our own are like filthy rags. Uh, per, very descriptive point there. But they're also like a wither like a leaf. Maybe in our context, I don't know, do, do corn stalks have leaves? What are those things that blow around? Are they leaves? Really? Okay. All right. There we go. There we go. There's an illustration at home. I, they're in my yard and I don't have corn. But, uh, so, but they, they wither like a leaf and the, the wind just takes, us, takes it away. Romans 3.20 Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Yeah, so even the law, keeping the law, those legalistic things doesn't produce uh, a, you know, salvation to a person. Uh, Galatians 3.16 Promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Is that Galatians 3.16? Okay. Um, Alright, I wrote it down wrong. So, but the point here is sinners can do nothing on their own. There's no special handshake. There's no legalistic thing that we can do. There's no being too good. There's nothing we can do on our own. We can't do it on our own. Sinners are therefore in a helpless state. Hebrews 9.27 And inasmuch as it is pointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. So we're in a helpless state. We're going to die, and then there's going to be judgment. Can't get away from that. Luke 12, 2. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Romans 2, 16. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. And Revelation 21, 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, adulterers, Yeah, so we're in a helpless state. We've, we've seen the holiness of God, which is the standard, and He can't accept anything other than that. But we've seen this state that we're in, which is helpless. So number three, instruct them about 
Christ and what He has done. The gospel is good news about who Christ is and what He has done for guilty sinners. So repentance alone is not the gospel message. The heart of the gospel message is how God bridged the gap between sinful humans and His own holiness. The gospel is wonderfully seen in the person and work of Christ. We can't get around the gospel without Christ. So, He is eternally God. Let's look at see who He is. He is eternally God. John 1, 1 through 3 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yeah, and then Colossians 2.9. For him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So it's important that he is eternally God. He's also Lord of all. Revelation 17.14 He will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Right, and Philippians 2.8 and 9. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And verse 11 says his name is... What? Anybody? Lord. Lord, Lord, right. So Acts 10.36, he is Lord of all. So he also became a man, Philippians 2, 6, and 7. Who was there at Philippians? Who, being in, ver in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. So he became a man, a real man, and he is completely pure and sinless. Hebrews 4, 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Okay, so we're seeing that he, he did become a real man, but he did not sin. 1 Peter 2.22 Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And 1 John 3.5 We know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. Okay, so... He became a man, he's completely, as a man, he is completely pure and sinless. And now the sinless one became a sacrifice for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yeah. Titus 2.14 Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purity for himself of people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Yeah. So the sinless 
one became a sacrifice for our sin. He shed his own blood as atonement for sin. Ephesians 1, 7-9. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he proposed in him. Because of his kindness in him, we have redemption through his blood. Forgiveness of our trespasses. It's great. Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Um, okay, I wrote that one down wrong too. He, I have, he loved us and released us from our sins by his blood. Is that... Is that next? Yes, to him who loves us, he has freed us from our sins by his blood. Okay, all right. So, so his shed, he shed his own blood as an atonement for sin. That is the atonement. And uh, uh, his blood that he, he shed on our behalf. He died on the cross to provide the way of salvation for sinners. 1 Peter 2.24 who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we have died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Yeah, so he died on the cross to provide the way for sinners. Colossians 1.20 By him to reconcile all things to himself, by him and by the things on earth, things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. He died on the cross provide the way for sinners, salvation for sinners, and he rose triumphantly from the dead, Romans 1 4. Who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 4 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So He was, He died, was buried, He was raised, and now he makes a way for reconciliation with God. Isaiah 1.15 says, So when you spread out your hand in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Listen, sinners are separated from God because of their sin. Isaiah says they have no access to him through prayer. Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They are alienated from the fellowship experienced by those who know their heavenly Father. But Christ's death and resurrection make it possible for people to be reconciled to God. Christ's death and resurrection 
make it possible for people to be reconciled to God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in the Spirit. The next thing we need to tell them is what God demands of them. We've taught them about God's holy. We've told them about God's holy. We've instructed them about Christ and what He has done. We've told them about what God... Uh, now we need to tell them what God demands of them. Repentant faith is required. It's not just... just a decision to trust Christ for eternal life. It's a forsaking of everything else we trust and turning to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's important to, to, to kind of grasp. It's not just a decision for Christ for eternal life. It's forsaking everything else we trust and turning to Jesus as Christ, Christ as Lord and Savior. At the center of evangelism is a call for a person to stop being a slave of sin and become a slave of God. That's the whole point. So let's look at uh, repent, Ezekiel 18.30. Somebody got that? Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord, repent, turn from... Turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. A call to repent. Acts 17.30 Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God has now declared to man that all people everywhere should repent. Acts 26.20 but declare first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. So what does God demand? He demands repentance. He also demands a person to follow Jesus. If Luke 9.23 and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And John 12, 26. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So again, it's not just, it's not just this... Um, uh, this decision for Christ. It's a forsaking of everything else and making Christ Lord of our lives. All right. Trust Him as Lord and Savior. Acts 16.31 Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust Him as the Lord and Savior. Romans 10.9 I think we did this earlier. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Advise them to count the cost thoughtfully. Salvation is absolutely free. So is joining the army. 
You don't have to buy your way in. Everything you need is provided. But there's a sense in which following Christ, like joining the army, will cost you dearly. We've talked about that in, in other classes. It can cost freedom. It can cost family. It can cost friends. It possibly can cost your life. The job of the evangelist, like the army recruiters, to tell potential inductees the full story. That's exactly why Jesus' message was so often so full of, of hard demands. Look at Luke 14, 26-30. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. Hard demands. You forsake all else when you trust Christ as Savior. And uh, he becomes the number, pri- the priority of your life. Free or costly, death or life is best expressed in John 12, 24 and 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The cross is central to the message, uh, to the gospel message, because of its graphic message. It includes the awfulness of sin. We, it's awful. Sin is awful. We are nothing more than dirty, rotten, stinking sinners. The understanding of God's wrath against sin is graphic. The efficacy of Jesus' work in crucifying the old men, man. A.W. Tozer wrote, The cross is the most revolutionary thing ever to appear among men. The cross of Roman times knew no compromise. It never made concessions. It won all its arguments by killing its opponent and silencing him for good. It spared not Christ, but slew him, the same as the rest. He was alive when they hung him on that cross and completely dead when they took him down six hours later. That was the cross that first time it appeared in Christian history. Another person said, The cross always has its way. It wins by defeating its opponent and imposing its will upon him. It always dominates. It never compromises. It never dickers nor confers, never never surrenders a point for the sake of peace. It cares not for peace. It cares only to its end, its opposition as fast as to end its opposition as fast as possible. With perfect knowledge of all of this, Christ said in Luke 9, 23, 
If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So the cross not only brings Christ's life to an end, it, it ends also the first life, the old life of every one of his true followers. It destroys the old pattern, the Adamic pattern in the believer's life, and it brings it to an end. Then the God who raised Christ from the dead raises the believer and new life begins. This and nothing less than this is true Christianity. The last thing is we urge them to trust Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.11 Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul sternly explains in 2 Corinthians 5.19-20 God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy or compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Romans 10, 9 and 10, keep coming back to that. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. And that brings us to Jesus as Lord. The first creed of the early church was Jesus as Lord. The Lordship of Christ filled apostolic preaching. It permeates the New Testament. In the very first apostolic sermon, Peter's message at Pentecost this was the pinnacle. It's the Acts 2, uh, 32 to 36, where he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The content leaves no doubt about Peter's meaning. This message, this was a message about Christ's absolute authority as the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Throughout the book of Acts, Jesus' absolute lordship is a recurring theme. In, in, uh, in Acts 10.36, Peter opened the gospel ministry to Gentiles at the house of Cornelius, and he said, He is Lord of all. The truth of his lordship was the key to apostolic preaching. Uh, this... Uh, T. Allen Chrysope, in his wonderful book, Jesus is Lord, writes this, There is no element of apostolic preaching more prominent than the resurrection, exaltation, and lordship of Jesus. He adds, the confession, Jesus is Lord, is the most single prom uh, predominant Christian confession in the New Testament. Not only does it occur several pa in several passages which emphasize its singular character as the Christian confession, but it also occurs numerous times in a variant form of the phrase, Our Lord, 
a designation of Jesus, which was so widely used that it became the distinctive and universally recognized Christian confession known and acknowledged by all believers. And then he writes, all the basic facts of the gospel story are implicit in the single brief confession, Jesus is Lord. And so the apostle Paul said, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves your bondservant for Jesus' sake, which is 2 Corinthians 4, 5. Jesus as Lord is the evangelistic message we bring to a world that is lost without it. What I'm, what I'm trying to help you see again is that the gospel is not about a plan. It's about a person. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. I think all these points are, are really a good application of how to pray for a person. You know, mm-hmm. That they would see their sin. I mean, these points are wonderful, by the way. I think it gives intelligence to our prayers. Yeah. I think so. I think so. I, I, I hope you are praying for the lost. I hope you're praying that God would bring someone to you that is lost. It's not easy that, you know, going, coming to a class that says all this, is, it's easy to write all this down. It's not easy. I get that. But the more we can, can, can be convinced of these facts, the easier it's going to be to talk to other people about Christ and their need for salvation. Any questions? Like you said in the beginning, it's not the problem is we, people accept Jesus as their Savior, but he does, he does, we don't make him Lord of our life. That's, that's right. a huge, huge problem. It is. What you hear, and that's what you said in the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, that's that Matthew, Matthew 7 passage. That's the scary passage, you know. You, 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 you might know who Christ is and Jesus is, and you, you have these, these uh, the Pharisees had a knowledge and, and did all these things in the name of Christ, but they didn't, he wasn't their Lord. I like your uh, likening it to joining the army. When you join the army, it's like they got you. They own you. <laughs> and they're going to tell you where to go, where to live, what work to do. But they feed you. They take care of you. You don't have anything you don't need. The equipment, in spite of all the grumbling you hear, is, is very adequate for the job that you've been given to do. Mm-hmm. And even when we take a job, we recognize our boss, our employer, he owns us for 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week. And we don't seem to have trouble submitting to that. And then we come to the Lord and say, yeah, but my life is my own. And the Bible says our life is not our own. It is his. And uh, we want to keep crawling off the altar and, and remain autonomous about what we do, where we go, and, so forth. So, 
Yeah, just to piggyback on, on Gary, yeah. It, it, the term Lord means master. Boss, yeah, owner. yeah, yeah. A slave of God. We are. Yes. This is in addition to what Jeff was saying about Jesus is Lord, Philippians 2. Um, I suppose verse 10. So that at the, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Yeah. If we don't now, we will. We will one day. All right. Without that, let me pray. Father, we are, again, incredibly thankful for Christ Jesus, our Lord, and the fact that uh, He went to the cross, He died, He was risen from the dead and to defeat death itself. And we're thankful that You reached out to us even and uh, that we can name you as our Lord. And Father, as we, as we get caught up in what the world around us is, help us to not forget that you are our Lord. And the things that are around us are just temporary things. And so cause us to be faithful, obedient, uh, servants of you. And uh, we'll thank you for that. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.